My name is Justin, and I'm the Family Ministries Pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly, and I'm so honored to be wrapping up this series, Some Assembly Required, with you this morning. This marriage series we've been in the past few weeks has been amazing. Pastor Roy, in weeks one and two, gave us some incredible wisdom and tips for marriage, as well as some much-needed reminders of things that our culture oftentimes distorts surrounding our understanding of marriage. If you've missed those messages, you know, it really sucks. You missed out. Where were you? But it's okay, because we do have them online. We have actually got a podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. It's on the website. You know, you can check them out. If you're listening right now, this is weird. I'm, I'm talking to people in the future about you. But we, we upload those every week after service. So, you know, you never have to miss a message again. But it's still nice to see everybody's face, right? So... You've probably heard the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You know, talking about how when you compare your situation to another person's, theirs will oftentimes look better because you don't know the specifics. However, with real lawns, this isn't actually always the case. Um, take the house I grew up in, for example. Um, I could point to maybe one or two weeks in my life where our grass was definitely greener than our neighbor's. Um, and that was the two weeks after we had laid fresh sod down. It was a few years back. Uh, before that, and you know, three weeks later, it was undeniably 100% less green than our neighbors. Now, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Would assume that at some point in time, other than those two weeks, our neighbors would have recognized our grass as nicer than theirs. But I can tell you, 100%, they did not see our grass as nicer than theirs. <laughs> The phrase I much prefer and can agree with fully is the grass is always greener where you water it. You know, the difference between our lawn and our neighbors was they both watered and cared for their lawn and we on the other hand did not so much. You know, they'd be out there pulling weeds, fertilizing, watering, you know, doing the whole nine yards and my family, we just mowed it when necessary at best. As we wrap up this series on marriage, talking about how having a healthy and God-honoring marriage, you know, we have to know that this doesn't just happen by accident. It takes actual effort and intentionality. Now, I don't recommend we all begin comparing our marriages to, you know, others around us, you know, real life on social media, TV, magazines, whatever. But simply refraining from comparing our marriages to others around us isn't actually going to improve the quality of that relationship. It's just going to keep you from becoming more miserable. As a matter of fact, the amount of things we can actually do to increase our base level of personal happiness in life is way less than we would think, and quite counter to what many of us would probably believe to be true. It can so often be easy to think that if only I had a nicer house, I'd be happier. Or if I had a better job, I'd be happier. Or if I drove a nicer car, I'd be happier. If I had more money, I'd be happier. But this is only partially true. I have a, let's see if I can figure this out this time. The answer is no. Don't worry about that. So, a psychologist, Dr. Henry Cloud, says that certain, uh, circumstantial happiness only increases our level of happiness by about 10%. So, you know, that rest of the 90% has absolutely nothing to do with, with what's going on in your life. 
So, you know, sure, if you get that new car, a promotion, find $20 on the ground, get in a relationship, you know, whatever it is, it will only boost your happiness by a maximum about 10%, and only for a short amount of time. After a little while, you'll go right back to your default level of happiness of who you are as a person, and that other 90% of your happiness, which has absolutely nothing to do with what happens in your life, has everything to do with how you approach life. And one of the single most contributing factors to that 90% of your base level of happiness as a person is the place of gratitude in your life. If the grass is always greener where you water it, an attitude of gratitude is one way we can water our relationships. Comparison, it steals joy, it crushes happiness, it makes you discontent and leaves you envious, but the opposite of envy is gratitude. Having an attitude of gratitude is what we're talking about this morning, and it changes your perspective. Having an attitude of gratitude changes your perspective. I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 with, with me this morning, um, or hopefully you can follow along with me on the screen. And we're going to be hanging out in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. But before we jump into that, I'm going to pray for us in this message here this morning. Scott, thank you for, t- for today. Thank you for this morning and this opportunity that we're able to, to come and, and worship and, and, and fellowship and, uh, and to hear from your word, God. I pray that, that as, we, as we hear this message, God, that, that it wouldn't be my words speaking, but God, it would be you speaking through me, God, that, that your truth would be what sticks out, God, what, what it's laid on the hearts of us this morning, God, that, that your Holy Spirit would speak to every single one of us here this morning in a close and personal way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Colossians is written, is a letter written by Paul to a group of churches in a place called Colossae. Now, it's an ancient city. You know, we don't have a place called Colossae now, but it was a, it was a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. As far as we know, Paul didn't actually know the people in Colossae that he was writing to. He likely traveled through the area, but didn't actually stop, preach, and plant churches there himself. But Paul, through association, writes this letter to a group of believers there in response to some kind of wrong teaching uh, regarding Jesus and to encourage them in the correct path. So, here we go. So, Paul, we're, we're, we're going to start in actually verses 16 and 17. So, Colossians 3.16. Paul writes, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now these two verses actually come at the end of of the passage that we're looking at this morning. And the passage these verses find themselves in is so jam-packed, but the concluding idea of this section that we read is so key. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. And Paul concludes this thought by saying the result of letting that message, the message of Christ, fill your lives is an outward expression of gratitude, of thanks. Now the beginning of this passage is actually super interesting in how that it relates to the end. It says, and we're going to pick it up in Colossians 3.12, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. 
Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. This passage is super jam-packed, but the way that Paul lays it out is very intentional. Paul begins by, by explaining the relationship between God and mankind, that God chose us to be in relationship with him. That being in, that, that we're able to be in a close proximity with God, that, that, that empowers us for mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then Paul goes on to, to begin explaining forgiveness, which is one of the ways we demonstrate the, four, the, the five aforementioned traits. But the reason we're able to be in a relationship with God is also that same forgiveness. But also, in forgiveness, we're reminded not to hold each other to ridiculous standards, but to consider others and respond in love and live in peace. In these passages, Paul uniquely tells the message of Christ when he says, and when he says, let the message of Christ fill your hearts, he's referring to the message he just told them. It's amazing that Paul manages to explain, you know, the entire, you know, message of what Christ came to do in just six sentences without going into any of the narrative details. Paul describes the new relationship between God and people, that he called us into holiness, which is interrelationship, and into a proper love with him. And he explains the forgiveness of sins, how Jesus forgave us, and that's the reason we're able to be in that relationship with God and why we're able to forgive others as well. He talks about Christian living and peace, humility, kindness, gentleness, patience. But that's not where it ends. Paul describes how this message is to look, overflowing out of our lives. What it looks like to be completely transformed by this truth. Now, for many of us, the way we've been taught or the way we've seen the Christian life lived out or, you know, maybe what we've heard, oftentimes it can seem like, like the end result would be obedience. You would think that, you know, when we've been made holy, that we've been forgiven, we have peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, patience, mercy, that the end result would be obedience, that now we obey God, now we do what he says. But that's not what Paul says here in Colossians but that the end result of being made right with God, being in a right relationship with God, of being forgiven, that the end result is overflowing gratitude in our lives. So we're going to go back to verse 16 and 17 again and read that with that in mind. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let that you've been brought into right relationship with God fill your life. Let that you've been forgiven fill your life. Let that you forgive others fill your life. Let mercy, kindness, gentleness, patience, and peace fill your life. But... When that has happened, when the richness of the message of Christ has filled your life, the end result is an outflowing of thankfulness, of gratitude to God through Jesus. In Paul's view, as we seek to represent Christ in the lives of people around us, that is literally being Christ to them, meaning the intent is that if people see us, in part, they have seen Christ, our, but our lives should overflow with thankfulness to him through that. 
And there are three reasons why this continual attitude of gratitude is important with our relationship to God. The first is an attitude of gratitude shows that we have a need. If there was no gratitude towards Christ in our lives, it would seem that what he did for us by dying on the cross to pay the price for our sins, bringing us into full relationship with God wasn't that big a deal. But it is a huge deal, so we are grateful for it. It's when followers of Jesus do not exhibit gratitude that we run the risk of appearing hypocritical. And while we obviously still make mistakes, many of the mistakes you know, we warn against or believe are wrong, it's an attitude of gratitude that will show the people around us that we aren't hypocritical on purpose, because it isn't what we do for Christ that saves us, but what Christ did for us. When we forget to be thankful, when we forget to overflow that gratitude in our lives for what Jesus did for us, that's when we start to cross the line into what is called works justification. A works justification is just a term for when we believe that it's what we do that gets us into heaven, or works justification is when we believe that it's what we do that makes us in right relationship with God. But that idea is completely contrary to the gospel. It's completely contrary to what Jesus died for, and it's completely contrary to how Jesus dealt with our sin. Because the gospel message is that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we as human beings were so helplessly lost, so completely stuck in a hole that we couldn't climb ourselves out of, that the only way to get out had absolutely nothing to do with us, but that God came down as a person, lowering down a ladder, not even so we could climb up that ladder, but so he could come into the hole with us and, and carry us out himself. But so often we get ourselves into this idea that it's what I do that matters. It's how I act that's the most important thing. But what Paul is reminding the churches of here is that the most important thing is what Christ did. And when we understand that, when we accept that, and when we fully live in that, our lives exude gratitude because we know we couldn't do it by ourselves. That if it weren't for what he did, we wouldn't be saved. We would still be stuck in that hole. Now, this isn't a license to just go and do whatever we want because of that. But when we live our lives as an in an attitude of gratitude, it communicates to others around us that even when we mess up, because of our attitude of gratitude to Christ, we don't hold ourselves to high standards because we think we're better than anyone else, but because we, in response to what Christ did for us. Secondly, an attitude of gratitude changes our perspective. When we live our lives with an attitude of gratitude, our perspective shifts. We begin to see people in light of what Jesus has done for them rather than what they have done. We begin to see them how Jesus sees them. And lastly, when we live life with an attitude of gratitude, we are reminded why and how we got here, which is to glorify God and because he saved us, not by our merit, by his grace and mercy. In this series, we're talking about relationships, specifically marriage relationships. And while I don't believe the most important thing in our lives is happiness, but at the same time, if we're looking for keys to having God-honoring, successful marriages, whether you are somebody who is married, going to be married, wants to be married, or know someone who is married who you give advice to, in addition to many of these principles being applicable about other relationships, friendships, family relationships, being content and happy in your marriage and relationships is important to that cause of having a healthy, God-honoring relationship. Now, as the saying goes, happy wife, happy life. And, you know, I'll go and say, 
that it also works, happy husband, happy life, happy marriage, happy life. And ladies, if you're like, Pastor Justin, that doesn't rhyme. Be like, you don't need it to rhyme to remember it. But guys, it helps because we forget anyways, and it just rolls off the tongue. So we need all the help we can get. That's why ours rhymes. But as we found out earlier, situational happiness is not enough to rely on in our lives, and especially not our marriages. If your relationship is hinging on good times to stay together, it's not in a great spot to begin with. Because again, situational happiness only gives you that temporary 10% increase. So if you're, you know, after you get back from that amazing vacation, finish fulfilling that dream together, get that new house, that new car, that new promotion, or even after you have your first child, after time, your happiness will just go back to whatever it was before that thing happened, eventually. And that's why gratitude is so important. If we value our marriages, which we do, if we value the relationships we have with people, which we do, then we can't afford to not let the gratitude we have for God overflow into our marriages. And the same three reasons why gratitude is important for our relationship to God are also three examples of how an attitude of gratitude can shape our relationships. You know, the grass is always greener where you water it, and an attitude of overflowing gratitude is one of the ways we can water our marriages and relationships. So firstly, an attitude of gratitude shows that we don't have it all together. Just as gratitude toward God's gratitude towards God keeps us from becoming legalistic hypocrites. When we let that gratitude overflow into our marriages, it recognizes that the other person is appreciated, adds value, and makes a difference in your life. Also that when we make mistakes, you know, we understand. <laughs> I know for me, on days when I leave the house first and we just have fresh snowfall, I'll sometimes wipe Haley's car off before I leave, and I don't do this because I want to be thanked for it or need to gain recognition for what I did or because she's eight and a half months pregnant. But there's nothing that motivates me more at the same time in helping my wife with things like that than knowing that she actually appreciates it. You can go for bigger things and smaller things too. You know, even just something like spending time together, watching TV, thanking them for being there, for hanging out, maybe for letting you choose the show that they don't care at all about. But even on a very practical, self-serving note, if your spouse, future spouse, significant other, or even friend does something for you, and you never let them know that you appreciate it, what if they never do it again? If you thank them for it, at least they'll know that, you know, you appreciated that, and maybe they'll do that again. Like, even on that level, it can help you. <laughs> but secondly, an attitude of gratitude changes our perspective. I'm a firm believer that you will just about any time find what you're looking for. You know, if you live life with an attitude of gratitude, looking for things to be thankful for, your entire perspective in life shifts. When you change from looking at the grass on the other side of the fence to watering the grass on your own lawn, things start to look a lot better. But if you're looking for, at your life, looking for all the things your husband or wife does wrong, all the things that are going to bother you, all the things they don't do that you wish they did, you'll also find those things. And that posture of envy, of disdain, frustration will kill your marriage. Now, the other side of that is this. If you approach your marriage with an attitude of gratitude, recognizing the little things and the big things, focusing on the things you love about the other person, 
appreciating the things the other person does. It's like seeing life through a brand new lens. So for an example, I'm going to need some help with this. So Jonathan's going to come up, and he's going to be my wonderful assistant. And move this out of the way a little bit. But this piece of paper in this frame represents your marriage. It could also represent your relationship other than a marriage relationship. It's a very complicated metaphor. Um, you really have to, have to expand, you know. The thing that says your marriage is your marriage. And the, the plastic, or you know, would be glass if it was more expensive, outside is the lens through which you view it. Now, you know, when you're being negative, you're clouding that, that, that image. When, when, when you're focusing on the, on the things that you, you wish that they would do, or you wish, the things you wish would be better, the stuff that, you know, bothers you, I'll just re really slather it on there. Yeah, we don't want that really clouded. You know, all of a sudden, it doesn't become so clear. It's, it's not so nice. It's not such a, a wonderful picture. But when you live your life with an attitude of gratitude, we can switch to the, we can pick up the gratitude now. See, it's water. When we live our lives with an attitude of gratitude, it can wipe that away. You also need a cloth of gratitude. <laughs> you know, even if you're just criticizing in your head, it still, it still gets there. It clouds your vision. But living your life with, with that clear perspective of, of looking for things to be thankful for clears it away. Thank you, Jonathan. You did a great job. Give him a round of applause. Fantastic. He accepts tips. But lastly... An attitude of gratitude reminds us of why we are with the person in the first place. You know, last week, Pastor Roy mentioned the, the new relationship butterfly effect feeling where you know, everything is always good in a new relationship. But at some point, usually within the first year or so, those rose-colored glasses come off and things begin to take a little bit more work than they used to. But when we get bogged down with the things we aren't happy with, we can run the risk of losing sight of why we fell in love in the first place. You know, I'm sure many of you live in houses where you know, something in that house bothers you or something needs to get fixed that you, you know, just never get around to doing. You know, maybe it's a room that seems like it doesn't utilize the space well, you know, a wall that you'd like to knock down, a piece of furniture that you just really don't like, a creaky floor, a painting project, a broken banister, I, I don't know, it's just anything, the list can go on. But after living in a place for three, four, seven, ten years, whatever, things can pile up, and you can easily forget why you moved into that house in the first place. You know, the negatives can take precedent over the positives. But the reason you moved in is probably still there. You know, if you had a good home inspection, hopefully, you know, hopefully it's structurally sound still. Hopefully it's still built on a good foundation. You know, hopefully it still has enough space for your family. It's warm, it's dry, it's close enough to work. You know, kids like the schools. You know, but focusing on the negatives of the situation, that creaky floor, the ugly wall color or whatever, doesn't actually make 
the situation any better. It just makes you forget about the good things that have always been there. And when we approach our marriages with an attitude of gratitude, we remind ourselves of what that relationship was like when we were young. You know, when the other person could do no wrong in our eyes. When being with that other person was the only thing we could think about. Living life with an attitude of gratitude re-sparks a sense of wonder and young love. But it starts with an overflowing attitude of gratitude to God through Jesus for what he has done in your life. So, in closing this morning, as we go to sing the song, Goodness of God, remember that our gratitude can give us a fresh perspective on life, on our marriages, on everything. And that it's the gratitude for what Christ did for us that overflows and is what colors everything else in our lives, especially our marriages. So, as we sing this song, reflect on that. Reflect on, on, on what Jesus has done for you in your life and what that looks like. Let that, let that stir up, let, you know, let that become come fresh, like it like happened for the first time. And, and, and let's, let's leave this place this morning with, with that overflowing out of us, coming overflowing with that, that continual attitude of gratitude. <laughs>